This is episode 26 of the Investors Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is the Investors Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Sting Broderson. All right. How's everybody doing today? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host of The Investor's Podcast, and I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And we also have Hari Ramachandra back on the show, and he's out in the uh, California area, in the in the Bay Area. And so, uh, Hari's from Bits Business, and uh, if you've listened to our show in the past, you've uh, heard some episodes with Hari on. And the reason we brought Hari on to the show today is because Hari, myself, Stig, uh, we're working on a project on the side um, where we're trying to stand up a new website that um, helps people uh, learn how to create online business assets. And just so everyone knows, don't get too excited because this isn't coming out like next week. Um, we're probably about six months out um, and it's March of 2015. So we've got about another six months, probably at the earliest that this thing was going to probably launch. But in an effort to um, prepare ourselves for working together as a team and standing up this new website, one of the things that we wanted to do is read a book together that we felt was going to be uh, very conducive for this new business that we were trying to start. And the name of that book is Rework. We are also intrigued uh, about reading this book because there's uh, a very famous billionaire. His name is Mark Cuban. He's the owner of a basketball team down in Texas. And he's also uh, on this TV show called Shark Tank. And uh, Mark Cuban uh, made this quote whenever he was uh, writing a review for this book, Rework. He said, if given a choice between investing in somebody who has read Rework or has an MBA, I'm investing in Rework every time. This is a must read for every entrepreneur. So that kind of piqued our interest because Mark Cuban's a billionaire. And whenever you know billionaires say certain things, we try to listen up and, and try to take notes. And so that quote really caught our interest. And another thing that's nice about the book is it's not really all that long. It's kind of a short read. I think it's, is it 200 pages or what is it? Something like that. Yeah. You guys are nodding your head. So it's somewhere around in that range. It's not very long at all. And after having read the book, I can completely understand why uh, Mark Cuban has the quote that he has, because this book was very, very useful. And it's it's so simple. And I, th I think that's probably why it resonated with me most. And I think that Hari and Stig probably have the same opinion. So um, what we're going to do is we're just going to highlight our top five points for the book. And for everybody that's out there on our email list, uh, you know that we every book that we read, we write an executive summary and then we blast that out to everybody on our email list twice a month. And so um, if the, our discussion on here isn't long enough for you and you want to kind of capture more, definitely read our executive summary that we'll send out on the email. Also, this show is a little disjointed because we're talking about rework in the first half. And then in the second half, we're going to be talking about comments that were made at the World Economic Forum back in February, uh, where people like Ray Dalio and um, the economist Larry Summers were there and they were making these fantastic remarks. We're going to play their remarks and then we're going to we're going to talk about that. Because I know there's a lot of people out there that are interested on our thoughts and our opinions with this world deleveraging situation that um, we're talking about a lot lately. So that's going to be the second half of today's show. All right. So the, the first part here, we're going to be talking about rework. And I'm going to throw the first point over to Stig. He's going to talk about his first point that he really liked in the book that he thought was uh, useful for the audience. 
Yeah, so what this book is, I think that the paradigm this book is really written in is uh, Silicon Valley. So these guys uh, who have been writing the book, they created Basecamp. So this is a piece of software where you, you manage your projects. Preston and I actually use this uh, this software uh, ourselves. So yeah, I have, have the deepest respect for these guys. They really know what they're talking about. But the thing that I really wanted to talk about was let customers outgrow you. This was a point that was highlighted a few times uh, by the authors. And what he is saying is that he would very often get requests from people saying, you need to add this feature to your software Uh, very, very frequently because all uh, individual companies have certain needs. But he was more looking the other direction. He was saying, well, it might be that your business is growing and you have more complicated needs. But if we're doing what you're saying, then we will lose focus on the overall project, which is making a simple piece of software that can be running your projects. So the more complicated you might be asking because it suits your needs, it's not good for you know, like the overall customer's base. So uh, just to sum it up, what he's really saying is that even though you might lose some customers, by keeping things simple, you will be gaining more, com- uh, more customers because more customers will grow into your customer base than, than leaving. So, Hari, I would actually like this to uh, to throw this out to you because you work in the Valley. What do you think about his um, his way of thinking simplicity into the product? Uh, I agree with him. Um, many uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, um, including Peter Thiel, uh, about whom we have talked about in the past, and Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, they all talk about a minimum viable product to go with first. In fact, Reid Hoffman has uh, once said in an interview that if you are not embarrassed when you release your first version, <laughs> you're already too late to the market. Hey, so I like the example they used in the book with this one. So uh, he was talking about a hamburger stand and he said, you know, at the end of the day, if you have a very focused product, your hamburger is going to be the best hamburger out there. So uh, in, if you're in the United States, five guys kind of comes to mind uh, for me. When you go in that restaurant, I mean, the things that they hang on the wall are like these cardboard like cutouts. It's almost embarrassing how minimal that restaurant is. But the one thing that they do get right is that the hamburger is very good. I mean, if compared to like McDonald's or something else like that, there's no comparison. And I think that that's really kind of at, at the heart of what these guys are getting at in the book is, If you're starting a new business and your business is a hamburger stand, your total focus and all your effort needs to be on is the hamburger good. And I think they use actually a hot dog stand in the book. It's been probably a month or two since I read this. So um, they talk about the hot dog has to be fantastic. The condiments, everything else that you put on it, whatever, those are all secondary to the main product that you're trying to launch. And that laser focus on the product itself needs to be the essence of what it is that you're putting all your time and effort into. Because if you get that right, everything else is going to fall into place. Kristen, you kind of made a very good segue into what I was planning to highlight as one of the key takeaway for me from this book, and that is focus. Uh, And you are absolutely right. In fact, many companies fail because they try to do too many things uh, at the same time. Jeff Wiener, who is the CEO of LinkedIn, uh, where I work, often tells the employees to focus and to do few things really well. And one of the points that uh, the authors make in this book is that, you know, if you don't focus on the most important customer needs, and if you try to create a product 
that is trying to be good for everyone, you end up pleasing no one. Hey, so it's funny because there was a book and I've read this book a long time ago. In fact, I don't even know which one it is. I think it might have been the snowball that this conversation took place. And they talk about uh, this discussion whenever Warren Buffett and Bill Gates first met each other. Um, I guess Warren Buffett came out to Bill Gates's house and Bill Gates had his parents there and Bill Gates's father posed the question to Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, who had just met for like the first time. And he said, what one thing, if you had to narrow it down, the one thing that has led to all of your success for both of you two, what would it be? And I believe, and I'm, I'm you know, I, I apologize if I'm messing this up, but I believe that Warren Buffett went first and Warren Buffett said that his focus was the main reason for his success because he was able to continually focus on the same thing and he became an expert in what that was. And so then uh, Bill Gates' father looked at Bill and he says, well, what do you think it is? And Bill Gates says, well, I think it's the same thing. I think it's focus. He says, I, you know, I focused on programming and all, you know, developing this software that was, you know, revolutionary. And because I focused on it so much, I was able to grow my business into what it is. So I find it very ironic. Two people typically, I mean, the the list kind of changes, but really the two wealthiest people in the world saying that focus was the number one thing that led to their success. So I just wanted to piggyback off of that because that was a story I remember from a long time ago. Uh, one thing um, in, in the rework that's really related to this is when we're talking about working long hours. Now, uh, when you read uh, rework, I would highly recommend that you do. Uh, you might also get the impression that the authors, they have this rant against corporate America. <laughs> I don't know if that's why they, they created their own company, but I think that they have a, quite a few good points because they're saying that it's almost like an honorable title to be called a workaholic uh, in corporate America. And what they're saying instead is that they would never hire people who cannot finish their you know, jobs in like 40 hours a week. That just means they're very inefficient. <laughs> <laughs> I love I, that point. I'm serious. I yeah. absolutely love that point. Go ahead, Hari. Yeah. I really like that point to stick and thanks for bringing that up. In fact, one of the famous entrepreneurs in India, uh, his name is Narayan Murthy. Uh, he started this company called Infosys, uh, which is a famous outsourcing company. Uh, he once had sent an email to all his employees saying, if you're working after six in the evening, you're a liability to the company. Um <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his reasoning was that uh, if you're working late, that means one, you're not managing your time well. That means you're, a, you're not a good employee. Number two, you might be stressed out and you're prone to making more mistakes, which might cost the company. You know, as a manager and as a, as a leader, as soon as I would see somebody like that, that's working way over the amount of hours that they should be working, you have a human capital allocation issue is what you've got. You have a guy who's taking on way too much responsibility and you probably have other people that are sitting on their hands for half their day um, and working four hours, even though they're sitting at the seat for eight. And so that is a major, I'd be going straight to the to the manager looking at him saying, why is this person here or after hours and working so hard? Either you're not allocating the hours appropriately or this person is extremely inefficient. So that's just a different way of looking at it. And, and I, I love how he debunks this in the book of, you know, in, in America, if you're staying after hours and you're working real hard like that, it's it's looked at as being a good thing, but it's really a display of inefficiency either on the manager's part or on the employee's part. So, a uh, fantastic point. Uh, Stig, go ahead. Do you have another one? Yeah, I have a I have a thing that I really disagree with, and that's always <laughs> that's always interesting, and it might be because it's taken out of context. 
uh, it might be because I have another uh, approach to things than uh, than the authors, or it might just be that I'm not as original. But was what he is saying, you cannot copy other people. You need to be very innovative. You need to be not necessarily the first mover, but you have to think uh, out of the box. And uh, this is an argument I very often hear. And it, it's not like I don't buy the argument. It's not like I don't understand the argument. But I think another approach, and this is a, a, an approach that Moniz Popright, which we have talked about a lot about, he's saying that you can just copy the best people. If you can, if you let the best people in the world, so in this situation, it would be Warren Buffett, for instance. Uh, if he copy, copies what Warren Buffett is doing, well, basically, even though he might not be able to do it exactly as good as Warren Buffett, you know, getting close is actually really, really good. This really takes me to think of something that if you do the same thing as everybody else, you end up with the same thing as everyone else. But if you do the same thing as successful people, you end up with success. So... I mean, I know that this might seem like a very reactive way of looking at things, but I just think that this is a very um, like philosophical uh, point to bring up. And Hari, I could see <laughs> right away that you had something to say about that. Yes, I do. As always, I know that uh, whenever you disagree, um, uh, there is some learning. And um, in fact, uh, this was a point when I was reading this book, I still remember, I just paused for a while. Because the same thought came to my mind, that is Manish Pobrai. And Pobrai calls it cloning, but he, he talks about the advantages of cloning. In fact, in a lunch with Charlie Munger, he asked him, what are good investments? And Munger, in a flash, said, cloners, cannibals, and spin-offs. And uh, Munger's reasoning behind it was that the early movers usually don't end up winning or taking away the value out of a market segment they created. However, um, I was trying to put some context into this particular comment in the book. And my thought is that the authors are talking in the context of small niche entrepreneurs. The niche entrepreneurs are the small time entrepreneurs. They're also called as micro entrepreneurs. They don't usually have the resources or um, the scale to go after established markets and they don't want to attract any big company or put it to put it other way they don't want to get into segments where big guys can put in a lot of money clone them and then just drive them out of the market in that context i believe copying or cloning doesn't work for product creation for small entrepreneurs they need to figure out a niche that they can serve and as pat would put it uh, Pat Flynn, who we interviewed in one of the previous sessions, um, if you are working on a niche that cannot be served by a magazine where you can place an ad for, say, 200 to $300, then it's too big because you will be overshadowed by big guys. I think that's the context. I can finally you know, conclude it. Yeah, and I agree with Hari as far as the the context of their comments in the book. But, you know, Stig, I thought the same thing whenever I was reading it. Um, I was like, well, I don't necessarily agree with that because there's a lot of things that I try to clone after people that are businesses or ideas that I've seen that are successful. And I think that it works out really well because you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. You're not trying to troubleshoot. You know it works. You can see what works. And I really think at the end of the day, my personal opinion is that a balance between You've got to be creative and you've got to come up with new ideas or else you're going to be left in the dust. And you have to be dynamic, too, 
But at the same time, if there is a proven path that works, you need to you need to start there as your as your starting point and kind of grow it, mold it and develop it from there on. And I think that that's kind of how I took it. I didn't I thought it was a little bit um, I had the same opinion as you whenever I read it. I thought it was a little extreme and maybe a little overdone. But um, the one point that I wanted to highlight in the book uh, was this idea of having a master plan. And I really like this because I am a hardcore believer and you've got to have the roadmap and you've got to have the plan. And if you remember back when we talked about the Peter Thiel book, he was a huge proponent of having the roadmap of how you're going to get from where you're at right now to what it is that you're trying to accomplish later on. But I think the authors of this book, because they were not a, they were not for having this master plan. They were more for like, hey, if you have an idea, go after it and be dynamic and where it takes you and 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 run with it really was the kind of their plan. And I again, I think that there's a balance between this. I think that you've got to have the mission statement of, hey, this is what I want to try to accomplish. How I'm going to do that, I really don't know. But this is my end state of where I want to be. And I think that you just start off with a template of what you think is is going to work. And I do agree with the authors that you don't want to get so detailed. I think a lot of people come up with their their roadmap and their and their plan, and it's so detailed, and they don't have any flexibility that they're so rigid that they're just like a robot and they just kind of fall over in, in place because they're so drawn to the plan that they can't see how they can be dynamic and and move with the current of opportunity and different things that present themselves. So again, I think it's a it's a balancing act that you got to have kind of both, um, and you've got to know when is it when is it time to deviate from the plan and when is it time to stick to the plan. But go ahead, Hari. Christian, uh, that's a very good point. Uh, in fact, I feel uh, Charlie Munger would agree with the authors. Um, uh, in an interview, uh, he said at Berkshire we never have master plans, and when asked why, he said. Um, one of the psychological factors that play in when you have a master plan is uh, consistency and commitment bias. Once you make a master plan, you're committed to it. Uh, you have shared that with your employees and your board of directors. And if you have to make changes to that, uh, then you appear to be a loser or like, you know, somebody who didn't really uh, plan out things well. So then you stick to it at the detriment of your company's uh, future prospects. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? 
Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is an AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Khosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. All right, Stig, do you have any other points or Hari, do you have any other ones you want to throw out there? Let's do one more and then we'll move on to the second part of the episode. Sure. Uh, one last point that uh, I wanted to highlight uh, from this book is that we learn more from our success than failures. And this, to me, was a counterintuitive point because most books talk about failing fast. <laughs> and and I'm I got that one down. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I was about to say that, you know, I got that one down. I'm a live example. Um, I followed it um, for a couple of years. I just failed fast. Um, well, you, nothing happens if you keep doing the same thing. As I think uh, Einstein might have uh, said this, that trying to do the same thing over and over again uh, is insanity. Yeah. Uh, but the problem with... Um, Learning from your failures is you will learn anti-patterns. That is, you learn what not to do, but that will not take you anywhere until you learn what to do. And I think there's a great point, Hari. And I come to think about the uh, the book Outliers by Gladwell that we talked about last time, last book we had, because he was saying that he was using these like hockey players, and I don't want to go into to depth with the with the example, but he was saying that if if you were a hockey player and you were born in the first three months of the year, uh, you have more success. So you will have more success because you will be bigger, stronger, therefore get selected for the best team, get a better coaching, get better teammates. I don't know if the way of thinking is the same. Like if you're successful in the business, you would very often, you know, find good people to work with. Uh, more qualified people will, you know, try to connect with you. And that will just give you even more success and let the snowball rolling. I've heard the same thing, read the same books about failures, and yes, I also cut that one down, but I just thought that this other approach was really interesting from a, say, a very philosophical point of view, uh, Preston. Yeah, if and I totally agree with the point that if you're going to be successful time and time again, you have to know what success looks like in order to implement it continually. And, you know, I'm of the opinion, and I know Stig's of the same opinion, that 
The best way probably to do that is find out who's the best at whatever it is you're trying to understand how to do. Tony Robbins is huge on this. Um, he goes out and he seeks the person who's the best at it. He studies their their critical variables of, of what it is that has made them successful. And then it's just kind of copy and repeat. And so that's kind of taking this quote or this idea that Hari mentions that you can fail and you can keep on failing. But if you really never know what it is that you've got to do to be successful, you're going to continue to fail. And there's so many people out there that have failed business after failed business after failed business. And I think that if they would take the approach of who is going to be the person that I try to model or who's the best at, at this line of business, let me study them, understand why they are. And let me go that route. And I think that's how you can maybe take that idea and kind of run with it. But uh, Hari, you have a follow up. Go ahead. I have worked with um, uh, serial entrepreneurs in my career in Silicon Valley. And I could really see the positive feedback loop that uh, Stig was talking about in action. Um, These guys have succeeded in one startup. They have the capital. And more importantly, they have the connections with the VCs. They have the trust of the VCs. And that really works for them when they start their second venture. I have rarely seen a serial entrepreneur fail in their second, third or fourth venture because the snowball is just rolling for them. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, let's go to the uh, second segment here. And this is going to be a really fun discussion because uh, uh, if you've been on our forum or you've seen some of the videos that we've been posting lately where there's a lot of talk that we've been throwing out there about this world, the leveraging situation where interest rates have been at near zero for eight years. We're getting the jitters and (laughs) we're just trying to talk about it and figure it out for ourselves, to be quite honest with you. Um, And so Stig sent uh, Hari, myself and a couple others um, this email a couple days ago uh, of this discussion that they had at the World Economic Forum out in Davos, Switzerland. And so what we're going to do is we're going to play the comments. And we were really excited because Ray Dalio, who we who we track very closely, his net worth is $16 billion. And he's the um, he's the founder and manager at uh, Bridgewater Associates, which is the largest hedge fund in the entire world. And in addition to Ray, there was another gentleman by the name of Larry Summers. And uh, Larry is a professor and former president of Harvard uh, University. He also served as the uh, 71st Secretary of the Treasury for President Clinton. And he was also the director of the National Economic Council for uh, President Obama. So this guy, whenever you you hear him talk, you're going to see how bright he is. And I think he's somebody else that we're trying to get him to come on the show. I know that that's probably a very lofty goal. But if you're listening to this and you want to send a Larry Summers, who is uh, at Harvard University, a message and tell him that he needs to come on the Investors Podcast, we will not uh, tell you to hold that email back. (laughs) So, um, Larry, if you're listening, I'm sure you aren't. uh, We'd like to have you on the show. So let's go ahead and uh, play um, these comments that we have from Davos. We're going to start off with the comment from Ray Dalio, and uh, then we'll just have a general discussion afterwards, and then we'll play Larry's comment, and we'll have another discussion. So here's uh, Ray Dalio's comments. (laughs) Um, Just to be clear, no, I think the uh, U.S. is in a good place. Okay, good. I I, I didn't mean that. Um, I think there's the U.S. and there's the world, and I think they're in different places, generally speaking. Um, And it's just mechanistic. When there's no ability to change interest rates, um, 
particularly when there's no ability to lower interest rates and have a transmission mechanism. Monetary policy to ease is in a bad place. We don't have an ability to ease if we need it to ease. The two reasons the United States is in a good place is partially because of the quantitative easing that it did. 25% of GDP was in quantitative easing, $3.8 billion, uh, $3.8 trillion. Um, 26% was in the UK. In Japan, it's been 36% of GDP. In Europe, it's been 3% of GDP. When you're in a situation in which credit does not is not going to work the same way as it did before. We cannot have debt growth the way that we had before. We can't look at debt growth the way we looked at it before. The interest rates to bring it down, debt service payments can't decline. So debt, let's not look for debt growth as the solution. That means that you can spend with either debt or you can spend with money. That means money is more important. That's why when we see set transactions, uh, we see this ECB policy, it needs to have more money into the system. Money can produce more purchases. It also means that when uh, the two levers are interest rates and uh, currency. It means when interest rate lever doesn't work, currency lever becomes more effective. So we necessarily must see more volatility in currencies. We must see a depreciation further in the euro. We must see a depreciation further in the yen. The average cost of uh, structural reforms, structural reforms are important. The average cost of a Southern European after adjusting a person, worker, after adjusting for the amount of time that they work, the vacation time, the work week, the retirement age, is about twice what it is in an American worker. So it's expensive. Either that has, is going to have to lead to structural reforms in the form of changing to make that more efficient. There's a lot of potential in Europe to make things more efficient and more economic. But the currency depreciation is going to have to be a part of it. And it's the it's the conversation that is not polite to have. Um, in other words, we could talk about changing interest rates, but policymakers can't talk about changing the exchange rate. And so the currency will be a bigger big, will be a bigger influence in the years ahead. This will produce a dynamic because the world is a lot. There's a lot of dollar denominated debt. That means that because there's a lot of dollar denominated debt, there's a lot of promises to deliver dollars that are becoming more expensive for various entities. So there's a short squeeze emerging in the dollar, very similar to 1980 to 85. I would call the period today very similar to 80 to 85 um, in that there's falling commodity prices, there's falling oil prices, there's a relatively strong economy with falling inflation. Back then, we could lower interest rates. We cannot lower interest rates now. So it's a similar dynamic in terms of those deflationary pressures. I agree with Larry in that um, you have to wait to you see the whites of the eyes of inflation. In 1980, if we didn't lower interest rates, even though growth was strong, we would have had a disastrous situation. It's somewhat analogous to that now, I think. All right. So the first thing that I want to just talk about, which was highlighted at the very start of Ray's uh, discussion, was we're in a different situation now because we can't lower interest rates any lower. Um, when you look back to the 2000 crash, um, you know, the the yield curves back then, I want to say off the top of my head, they were around they were flat at around five or six percent. Um, even in 2008, the yield curve was pretty flat at about five percent. 
um, where you're at right now, it's it's like it's starting to go flat, but it's at like two percent. So that's a major issue. Uh, the other highlight that I wanted to just talk about um, that I found really interesting in his comments there. Uh, actually, I have two points real fast is the one that he says pretty much the only thing that we can do now credit isn't going to work like it used to. So that means uh, we have to do something with currency, which means we've got to add more dollars to the monetary baseline. That's what he's saying there. And that's pretty much the way out of this for uh, Europe. And I think he threw out the figure three percent was all the more to their GDP of how many dollars they added to their monetary baseline, whereas the U.S. was in excess of twenty five percent. So that's a big difference. That's why I think you have seen such a change. And this is the other interesting point is that whenever the U.S. did that, when they added all these extra dollars to their monetary baseline, what they did is they weakened the dollar. I remember back in 2008, 2009, there was tons of people from Europe and all around the world coming to the U.S. because the dollar was so weak at that point. And now what you're seeing is the exact opposite. And it's amazing how these things go in cycles. So you're seeing the exact opposite. The dollar is really strong right now. And what's happening, that's bad for the U.S. because you're not having these foreign investors and these and these this foreign currencies coming into the country anymore because the, the dollar is strengthened. Um, and you're seeing the exact opposite flow in the opposite direction because now the euro is really weak. So now you'll probably see a bunch of Americans start going on vacation over to Europe and things like that. And so that's strengthening it in the short term. But overall, uh, I think Europe's in a very uh, tricky situation. But um, I want to throw it over to Stig and Hari and see if they have any comments on on Ray's uh, uh, talk there. Yeah, so I have a few comments, but first I'd like to uh, to piggyback off what you were saying before, President, about the currencies, because I think that what we're seeing right now is really interesting. Uh, right now they are sending something something like 60 billion uh, euros a month out in the system. So, I mean, things are really happening right now. And what is really interesting, as President was also talking about, is that it might sound counterintuitive that it's really good to have a weak currency. But very often, countries would like to have a weak currency because that makes it better to export. And in crisis like we're seeing right now, we're really relying a lot on export. So we would have a, a very good incentive to have very cheap products because cheap products means that more people are, are buying them. And if we are looking at, and this is definitely not something I, I'm saying that we are, but if we are to be looking at a situation where uh, you will see the EU or America or the yen um, in in Japan are you know competing to def- uh, to uh, depreciate their own currency with money supply, then we're really heading for trouble. Mr. Anstig, I really like the way uh, you described the cycle. Um, starting 2008 when dollar was really weakening and how uh, now the cycle has reversed and dollar is stronger. And one of the points that you made uh, was also very interesting. Historically, whenever a currency is stronger, their labor costs are higher and hence their products are more expensive. uh, Japan, look at Japan, perfect example. Exactly. And that kind of, you know, plays against them. And eventually, you know, once, once they weaken their currency, they become more kind of, you know, more in advantageous situation to export their goods. Uh, India is a classic case. Whenever Indian currency weakens, the rest of the economy suffers. But the export industries, including the software outsourcing industry, uh, does very well. Uh, something that I want to say is a lot of people are reading the gloom and doom and how we're talking about how we're so over leveraged and there's no room for interest rates to go but down. 
And I just want to highlight, it's very important to understand that when you're talking about macroeconomics, it's very relative. So um, when you look at the world economy, and I'm just going to kind of talk about the 80% here, and that's really China, Japan, Europe, US, those are really the big heavy hitters that are involved in the world economy here. And what you find is in this current situation where we're at right now, the U.S. is actually sitting, believe it or not, in a better situation than China, Japan, and Europe. And so if that's the case, um, I think that there's a chance that that during the next crash, whenever that would be, and for anybody who tells you that they know when it's going to happen, run the other way. Uh, we think that it could potentially happen in the next two years, but at the end of the day, we really do not know for sure when it's going to happen. But I will say that I think that going into this next crash, I think that the U.S. is um, better prepared than the other uh, major economic players. And that's a good thing because as the currency is traded amongst these countries, it's a very relative game, even though our debt to GDP is extremely high. Um, I'm not saying that it's going to be a cakewalk as we go into this next crash. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that of those countries, I think that the U.S. is probably best prepared. And I think that, you know, when you looked at the stress test that they just recently did on U.S. banks, all of them did very well. They uh, they performed exceptionally well. And I think that the Fed has been monitoring that extremely close ever since 2008. And you know what? They don't have a lot of money that they're lending these days compared to 2008. I mean, it's like it is significantly less. So um, I think going into the next uh, crash, the banks are going to be prepared. It's just uh, a matter of how much the market psychology really weighs in on the real understanding of what's going on here. Uh, Stick, go ahead. I see you have a point. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com WSB. That's Fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping. And say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Every business faces challenges, but shipping shouldn't be one of them. So keep things simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges for Saturday deliveries residential deliveries, or fuel. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there, helping you counter the rising costs of doing business with a budget-friendly alternative. And keep things reliable with on-time ground shipping, ensuring your shipments get to where they need to go while maintaining your hard-earned reputation. USPS Ground Advantage is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, 
The more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So uh, when Preston is talking about next crash and you might be thinking, is there some kind of news I didn't hear about? Uh, <laughs> this is definitely not the situation. But we, when we're talking about the next crash, that is because we are, we are working in cycles. And, and you might be, be, uh, be hearing this from Redalio, you might be hearing this from other people, but basically, even though you go back to the Bible, we're talking about cycles. The economy works in cycles. So when we're talking about the next crash, it's not really because we're trying to predict anything. It's just because we know that we will, well, have a crash at some point in time, just as well as we will having a boom. I completely agree both with Redalio and with Preston. And that's, Preston, it must be really nice to hear someone saying, I agree both with Redalio and with Preston. Well, you know why <laughs> You know why they're saying that is because my thoughts are Ray Dalio's thoughts. They're not original thoughts by Preston, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's why. No, I definitely agree with you when you're saying that. If you look in those four big economies, at the EU, uh, the US, Japan, and China, then America is probably uh, best prepared for the next crisis. But and and I mean, I might want to regret those words in, in years from now. I don't know. But when I look at those four big economies, I would say that America is like say average prepared, and the other three economies they're really poorly prepared. It's not like I'm saying. I'm, I'm looking at the U.S. and thinking they're in ship shape uh, at the moment. And what I think it's going to be interesting and what's getting more, more and increasingly interesting is that these four economies are really all interconnected. So, for instance, when you're hearing about China, they have just lowered their, uh, their goals for their future growth. Well, the reason for that is because China is such a large exporter. And when things go wrong in the U.S. and the things go wrong in Europe, guess what? This hurts China. So, yes, if we do look at those four economies, I definitely think the U.S. Uh, in a better state. But um, it's really hard to, to you know, just pick them apart because they're all so interconnected. Uh, all right. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go ahead and play the uh, comment that Larry Summers had during the uh, same exchange. And this, just so you guys know, there's a panel of five of the top level people, top economists, top economic thinkers in the world that were that we're playing these comments from. So this comment is from Larry, and he was the, the gentleman who we were saying that is the professor at Harvard and who worked under the Clinton-Obama administration. 
I'm going to stay <laughs> away from the person. from the Swiss and just uh, beyond observing that it is a very useful reminder of how much deflationary risks are the main risks that we have to deal with. I think we need to emphasize what I think everyone in this panel is clear on, which is that a strategy of austerity and grudging acceptance of limited monetary accommodation in the hope that that will be a driver of structural reform has proven itself to be substantially counterproductive and is instead bringing radicals to the fore in most of the places where it is being uh, applied. That the situation in Europe is not yet uh, in hand. I agree completely with you, Anna, that uh, the movements that have taken place in the euro have been uh, desirable. I don't think that any, and I agree with Christine, that QE has already had a significant impact, but that's why I'm worried. We've already had a set of positive developments and the economic forecasts are pretty dismal from here. And the kinds of policies we're seeing are already built into those forecasts. So I don't think we should make the mistake of supposing that the situation in uh, Europe uh, is uh, in hand. And I think we, I am for structural reform too, but I just want everybody to think about what I find to be one of the most surprising global economic facts when I look at it, because it's quite different from the conventional wisdom. Take men between the ages of 25 and 54. And I choose that group because there's a pretty strong expectation in most societies that they'll all be working. And ask yourself about the non-employment rate of men 25 to 54. In the dynamic, flexible United States, it is several percentage points higher than it is non-employment rate than it is in France with all of France's many, many rigidities. And that tells us something about the human magnitude of the human capital issues that the United States faces. And it tells me that we can't, and it tells us something about the consequences because the coming of technology is probably more advanced in the United States. And it tells me that we can't be completely serene that if we just have flexibilizing reform, all will be uh, well, which is why I come back to the central importance of demand. And I would suggest that there's a very basic idea that Keynes had that has largely eluded uh, Europe's, Europe's largest economic power. And that is what Keynes called the fallacy of composition, which I would explain this way. If anybody in this audience stands up, they will see better. If everyone in this audience stands up, no one will see better and everyone will be less comfortable. <laughs> if any one country saves more or any one bank hoards capital, it will strengthen its position. But if all countries save more, 
There will be less spending, which will mean less income, which will mean less spending, and the situation will not get better. If all banks simultaneously cut back on their lending, the result will be a across-the-board reduction in asset prices, and ironically, they will all end up with less capital, not with more capital, once that works through. And it is the failure to recognize that a one-off model that worked to produce export-led growth for Germany in the early part of the decade, when applied collectively, is like everybody stands up. That is the, and leads to an outcome that's worse for everyone. It is the failure of generalization and the failure of, the error of assuming that a strategy for, that worked for one once when applied universally will work. That is the central error that is driving much of European economic thought. And as long as it continues to drive European uh, economic thought, the prospects for economic success in Europe are going to be very limited. So I I love this comment, and I know it was a little long, but uh, hopefully everyone was able to stay with us as we uh, played all that. But um, the thing that I find just amazing is that last comment where he's talking about this overgeneralization of what worked in one country at one point in time is used as the thought process that's just going to magically work as you apply that same model to a bigger problem that's universal across the, the entire euro. Um, and I really liked his point before that, too, where he's talking about we need a coordinated effort is really what he's saying. He's saying uh, these these federal reserves across the world, this has to be a joint effort. If we're going, you know, one versus the other versus the other, it's just like this pushing of the water balloon from one economy to the other economy to the next one. Um, like our discussion where the dollar was really weak because we had this massive influx uh, to increase our monetary baseline, which made our dollar weak, which had an infusion of, of capital from foreign markets into the into the U.S. back in the 09, 010 time frame. And now all of a sudden the dollar is really strong right now. All we're doing is just manipulating these cycles because we're not working together as a unified group of countries in order to try to solve this problem. And really the solution to the problem is we've got to print more money and we've got to print more money in lockstep and in unison and we have to do it at a controlled pace. Call it ten percent every, uh, you know, couple years. That way, it's not so dramatic, and you have this massive collapse of the system. That economic forum—that's where those discussions need to take place, and these key leaders need to be doing that. But I think that you have, politi- you know, politicians that are trying to get their country ahead, and all they're doing is they're in a sprint for the first hundred meters, and then they run out of breath as the next country comes up and gets in front of them, and then it's just this back and forth and back and forth. And so amazing comments. It's it's really exciting to see somebody saying something like that in this type of forum. And, uh, you know, I just hope that other people are getting it. But go ahead, Stig. I, I see you have something. Yeah. And what the professor said about uh, income and spending, I found that was really, really interesting because uh, if we look at it, you know, really isolated, the best thing for the U.S. would actually be if they saved and, you know, the rest of the world would just go on a spending spree and buying American goods. But that's you know not what's going to happen. But just you know, ideally, that is what we want. Um, but what he's saying is, we all everybody needs to spend more because if we spend more, um, then we'll produce more and more people will be employed. They'll pay more taxes and so on and so forth. And you know, I, I completely agree with that. 
The interesting thing that we're seeing right now is that we have a widening gap between the rich and the poor. And I don't really don't want to be political. I'm not saying that something is right or something is wrong. But what's really interesting is that uh, the growth is not growing as, as high as it could be, simply because we see this widening of, uh, of income. Simply because if you have a lot of poor people, uh, they will not spend as much. They'll probably spend everything they have. Um, and then you have the rich people. And what the rich people w- will do is they will buy financial assets. They will not buy twice as much food if they have a lot of money, but they will buy they'll, financial assets. They'll increase and, their equity. Exactly. They're just going to continue to grow their pool of money or their money machine, if you will, that just keeps adding more and more dollars to their pocket, which then has the separation. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and two things will happen then. The first thing is that they w- this will really not increase production, or at least it will not increase the same amount of production as if the wealth was spread. Uh, and the other thing is that it will create bubbles in the, uh, in the financial markets, simply because we have a lot of money flowing in. And what is even happening more at the moment is that we see this quantitative easing, and this money can only be, be spent for uh, financial assets. And that's why you see these crazy prices, especially in the bonds market because that is where they can be applied. So um, again, I, it's not like I'm seeing a crisis right now, but I'm just seeing a lot of factors where if something goes wrong, a lot of things can really go wrong. And it's, it's really interesting times. And, and I think if you'd go back to 1981, at least in the US, is kind of that mark where everything started changing because that was the peak of your interest rates and they've gone down ever since 1981. And I think if you'd go back and you'd look at that gap stick between the ultra wealthy and the the lower income people in the United States, that's where you'd really start to see that gap starting to widen um, ever since that that critical point in time back in 1981. But go ahead, uh, Hari, uh, you say your last comment and then we're going to have to wrap things up. Sure. Uh, Stig, I really liked your point about the widening gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, in fact, I remember uh, this book, um, Stocks for the Long Run by Jeremy Siegel, uh, where he talks about uh, the unsustainability of the gap between the capitalist and the labor income. And uh, he compares the average labor income in the United States to the overall market cap And uh, he questions the growth of market cap or earnings uh, while the labor income is not growing at the same time. I guess Larry Summers also made the point uh, when he talked about the non-employment rate in U.S. is much higher than France, even though as an economy, we are doing much better. And uh, all this kind of, you know, boils down to the same point that the gap is widening. So, folks, I just want to throw out there, I, some, some of this stuff might sound like Greek uh, if you're hearing some of this for the first time. If you haven't been on our forum and you haven't watched some of these, uh, these videos that we've been putting out by Ray Dalio and different comments, um, what we're going to do in the show notes of this episode, we're going we're gonna to have all that stuff laid out for you. We're going to have the video that this billionaire Ray Dalio has made that describes this deleveraging process. He makes it crystal clear in this video, and it's 30 minutes long. It's called How the Economic Machine Works. I'm really trying to have as many people as possible watch this video because it's really going to help you in the long run. Um, It's well worth your time. I promise you that. There's also a white paper that Dalio wrote. It's probably like 300 pages or something like that. We're going to have a link to that. Read that. That is going to increase your knowledge of macroeconomics and just kind of what's coming down the pipe a whole lot better. We're going to have that. 
There's also another white paper that Dalio wrote, that Ray Dalio wrote, that is about this relative factor of currencies and how it relates to countries and their debt levels. And we're also going to have that up in our show notes too. And I highly recommend that you read that. It is another powerful read. Anything Ray Dalio writes, in, in my opinion, is worth reading because he's great at making things simple to understand. And I think that that's really hard when you get into this type of discussion of macroeconomics. Most people cannot make it simple. So um, we'll have all that out there so that you can kind of get caught up if you haven't been reading any of this stuff. Definitely start with the video because it's going to be it's going to lay a really good foundation for you as you read some of these other things. And we're going to continue this conversation. We have uh, an ongoing discussion on our forum. Uh, that's the WarrenBuffettForum.com. If you go there, you can see uh, Stig and I are on that. Anytime somebody posts something, we we typically reply right away with our comments. Uh, and I think that that's a, a spot where we can kind of leverage our community as a whole to try to help everyone navigate this this potential storm that's coming together. Um, because to say I have all the solutions, that's just a flat out lie. I do not have all the solutions. And if you think that I fully understand everything, you're wrong. I'm trying to figure it out for myself. And so is Stig and everybody else. So um, this is we are in uncharted territories. It is not normal to have interest rates at zero percent for eight years that is not normal um, and we're just trying to make sure that we take the path to protect our principle uh, as we go through this so help us out and uh, we'll try to help you out as we continue this dialogue and we'll we'll do this um, occasionally at the end of the podcast where we talk about different topics like this um, until you know we start to see things change and, and as we go through it so really appreciate what everyone's doing for us on the forum we are just having a blast interacting with different people that are sending us messages that are you know giving us recommendations for people to have on the show make sure you look up larry summers and send him a message and tell him we're trying to get him on the show i think that'd be really cool he's the second gentleman's comments there uh and if there's anything that we can do uh, just make sure you shoot us a message on the forum or by email and we'll try to get back to you and 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 knock it out. So uh, I hope everyone enjoyed the uh, show and uh, we really enjoyed the book rework. We'll send out our executive summary of that for you and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the investors podcast to listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show. Be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application. Be, 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 be